hard to believe that you can make good money doing what you love while making the world a better place? I feel you. My name is Eden and I'm a holistic business coach who spent years in nonprofits believing things like money is the root of all evil and trying to spiritually bypass capitalism before my desire for comfort, freedom, and stability outweighed my attachment to my limiting beliefs. See, after years of helping myself and many, many clients create profitable, regenerative feeling businesses that honor our spiritual and material needs, I launched New Money Social Club to give the very best coaching, community, and strategy for aligned abundant growth to believe it we've got to see it so this podcast centers the stories of diverse entrepreneurs who are daring to live work and create on their own terms in the spirit of a mutually flourishing equitable new economy Welcome everybody who is not already a part of New Money Social Club. Welcome to a very special session of New Money Social Club. So normally in this space, we meet weekly to grow, to heal, to take in new information around money, mindset, marketing, and business so that we can access the motivation, the accountability, and the community needed to build profitable, sustainable businesses of our dreams. So, but... And uh, the truth is, I'm sure as many of you know, the entrepreneurial journey is an outlier's journey, right? It can be tough. It can be a lonely uphill battle powered by the strength of our internal beliefs, which run the risk of being thwarted or stalled every day by naysayers, doubters, imposter, imposter syndromes, perfectionism, and our beloved friends and family with their own limiting beliefs. The easiest shortcut to tuning out those voices, though, and tuning into your inner wisdom and soul's purpose is to hear the stories and sit down with others who have made money moves on their own terms, have achieved stability by their own design, and are living that aligned, abundant life that we dream of. So without further ado, I want to introduce you all to the most humble, badass entrepreneur you'll ever meet and a dear friend of mine, Samantha Abrams. So Samantha is the co-founder of Emmy's Organics, which is a delicious, healthy cookie company that she started with her partner, Ian, back in 2009 in his mom's kitchen as a way of creating healthy treats that he could actually eat as someone who lives with chronic illness. Over the years, Emmy's has grown from a local farmer's market stand in Ithaca, New York, to a nationally distributed operation whose healthy treats can be found in Whole Foods, Sprouts, Walmart, Wegmans, and other stores around the country. In 2021, Emmy's was acquired by Grupo Bimbo, the largest bakery business in the world, a Mexican operation, through a conscious deal that allowed Sam, Ian, and their team to still play a role in the company while upholding their values. So there's so many rich topics that we're going to dig into and learn from today. And to start, Samantha, um, I would love to ask you the question that we ask ourselves in New Money Social Club, which is, who are you in your own words? And what do you love to do? Mm. Hi, everybody. There's so many people in this group that I love a lot. So it's so nice to, to see all of you and to be with all of you. Um, so who am I? Eden said, my name is Samantha. Um, I'm a cancer son. <laughs> no, I um, won't go into that. But uh, I am an entrepreneur. I'm a mentor and coach. I'm a dancer. I'm a connector. I'm very much an experimenter and a seeker alongside of growing Emmys for the last 14 years. I've been very passionate about um, studying personal growth. Um, and for the last three has kind of 
shifted more into healing work, which has involved a lot of work around food as well. Um, and I'm very much someone who I'm very passionate about the things that I love and I just can't help but share them with the other people around me. Um, so yes, that is something that's just a natural part of who I am. I love kind of trying things out and reporting back and kind of realizing that about myself. Um, and let's see, I love to take dance classes. I love to spend time with good friends and connecting with people. I'm very passionate about taking walks. And I'd say I feel most at home in like an old school health food store. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, that like still has a juice bar, you know? Yeah. You know, yeah. the type, you know, the smell. <laughs> yes. The smell of like alfalfa or something. I love the that. Disorder. Mm -hmm. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a dog mom. I'm like, what else? Yeah. Those are some things about me. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Samantha. Um, my next question is maybe a bit of a heady, heavy hit, hitter, but this is <laughs> Money Social Club. So we're getting into it. We talk about money. Can you share one story about money that you heard growing up? Um, yes, I, well, I think for me, I was in, when I was in fourth grade, um, I was at a, I went to a private school for like that, basically preschool through fourth grade. And it was around the time that my parents, um, got separated and eventually divorced. And I think it was the first time that I even had this sense of money for the first time because um we were told me and my brother that we were going to be moving to a different house and also moving to a public school and it was because we couldn't we weren't going to be able to afford to be in the private school anymore and i remember i've been thinking about this because i think that was one of my most kind of like early memories of not necessarily lack, but like, oh, you need this to do this. You know, for me to be in this school, I need to, there needs to be money resources. And I remember a lot of my close friends at the time probably didn't understand that either, but um, there were a few of them that wanted to do like a tag sale to like try to like raise money for me to stay in the school. And which is so sweet, you know, just what a good, good intentions. Um, but that was just a time where I really think that, um, you know, I really got a sense of like, oh, these people can be here because they have money. And it definitely became a theme later on because there were a lot of money struggles kind of after that, um, after my parents got divorced. And um, it definitely was like, oh, they can do that and we can't you know? And so, um, yeah, it was really interesting. Like my friends who I stayed in contact with who continued through private school, it just was like, felt like I, there was like a little bit of like a less than, um, for me because they had more money than me. Yeah. 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 That's super real. Samantha, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, we're, you know, yeah, just kind of opening up those doors and getting vulnerable and talking about our kind of early money stories is um, just everything because it's the one thing that we don't talk about and it's something that all of us share. So thank you. Totally. I've, yeah, I love this conversation so much and I've really been looking at my own kind of money habits and patterns um, throughout my life and to see um, my 
parents who like had a lot at one point and kind of it go away. Um, I definitely, at least in the past, the way that I have spent, it's like, if I felt like I had money, I would, I'd just be worried that it was all going to go away, you know? Um, and so that's something I almost continuously have to remind myself of, you know? Yeah, I feel that. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So we're going to switch gears just a little bit. Um, and we're going to zoom through to 2009, right? When you were making cookies, uh, in Ian's mom's kitchen, um, when you were just getting out of college, kind of getting your feet wet, trying some things out, um, and collaborating on this cookie project. I'm curious, did you have like visions or like any type of intuitive hit that it would grow into and turn into, uh, what it became that Emmys would grow into this big company that would serve you for the next 15 years of your life? Um, I don't think because I'd never seen, I didn't know what the industry was or like what businesses like ours looked like when they were successful. I don't think I actually knew, but I did have a feeling that like we were a really good team and that like we would we could accomplish a lot. So I definitely had a confidence for sure. But I think it wasn't until later when I started to like understand what the path of a business like ours could look like that I kind of realized that, you know, we had something. Yeah, got it. Um, Beautiful. So Sam, can you share, I know that there's been a lot of them, but what are a few of the sort of game-changing decisions or breakthroughs or moments in your business that really like expanded your capacity for growth? Uh, so many. Um, I mean, like in the early days, you know, hiring your first employee. I mean, like that's huge, you know, and it's, um, you know, a huge hurdle and something that can be really scary, you know, and you worry that someone may not be able to do things as well as you are because you're like, you know, the owner and you have, you know, so much passion for what you're doing. Um, From, but then eventually even like finding great employees to then promote to more manager positions and like to really see people thrive given more responsibility and ownership like that has honestly we've seen that in lots of different waves throughout the business and it's so amazing to really see people like kind of step in uh to their roles in that way um starting to use equipment <laughs> like when you do everything by hand and like you can make your life a little bit easier like that's such a game changer and you're like wow i we have more bandwidth to focus on other things um a big thing um was even like quitting the farmer's market. Like that was actually a pivotal time because I know I personally was like hanging on to this idea like of like being a part of the community in this way. And like, if we were a community oriented brand, like we needed to like be at the farmer's market. But meanwhile, we weren't making any money and like the effort and time, like we just didn't have days off, you know? And so that was like a big, we did it for three years and I was the one that was definitely hanging on because I just had this idea about it. But like giving that up and just having the ability to have a day off really, it's like, okay, no, we are like, it gave us more focus, I think with, you know, what was working. Mm -hmm. um, oh yeah. Similarly, I'm like, I could get, I could literally talk about this all day. So stop me. <laughs> um, but like discontinuing lots of products, like, we had so many different flavors and pack sizes and um, products that just were either taking too much time to make. Uh, they just weren't selling and we were 
hanging on to them as just this like idea, you know, that, oh, this is like new and innovative and like people just don't get it yet. Um, or yeah, pack sizes that like didn't fit in the places we wanted them to be merchandised, you know? And so like over the years, just kind of stripping that away and really focusing on what works, I think has been really huge for us. And it's like, we just kept going back to our core product line and that has really allowed us, I think, to grow the way that we have. So, yeah. Um, should I keep going? Well, I'm actually, I want to just dig in just a little bit more there because I think that, um, you know, aligning behind your sort of core products or product, right, is can be such a power move, but one that most of us don't make. We go on to make, well, let me try this. Let me try this. Let me try a new product. Um, so do you feel like that was ultimately like a common theme? Because I know that, I mean, there's also something to be said for novelty, especially in your line of work in this consumer packaged goods brands. Um, so yeah, what is the relationship between novelty coming out with new flavors, new product types, but then also sort of measuring the energy and effort and resources that each one of those take and like what the impact is on your bottom line. Yeah. And there is so much pressure to launch new products in our industry. Like if you go to a trade show, everyone's just like, what's new? Like they, that's all they care about. And there were many years where we were like, nothing, (laughs) you know, we have these products that we want to get in a lot of stores. And honestly, yeah, having the core things available makes a lot of sense before introducing new things. But um, I think for us, always looking back at financials and like getting real, you know, looking at, okay, how much did we actually sell of this? You know, we have this sprouted buckwheat cereal that I thought was just like the coolest, newest, bestest thing. And, you know, most people didn't want to pay as much as it, I forget now what the retail price was, but most people weren't into it. And just like, it was so different. Um, and so, yeah, and it cost a lot of money to make. It was very labor intensive. I know. And we tried to make it easier to make, you know, eventually we actually outsourced the, we were like sprouting buckwheat nuts, like all these, we sprouting them ourselves and then dehydrating this stuff for like two days. <laughs> it's like, no. Um, and so then looking at actually how much labor is this, you know, co- costing us the material, the, the time, and then how much is it actually bringing in? Like you have to just look and kind of be a little bit ruthless sometimes with, okay, this just isn't working and we really gave it a go. Um, and, you know, we've done that over and over again. Beautiful. Thank you. So you've had to kill a few darlings along here. Oh yeah. So many. Sprouted buckwheat cereal was one of them. Sprouted buckwheat. Oh yeah. I mean, even at the farmer's market, we would make all kinds of cool things, but like the time that it took us, like, and it was fun at the time it was experimental. And like, I'm so glad that we did it, but we just, yeah, we very time consuming, very, you know, there's something so special about like artisanal products, you know, that that take that time. But for us and like the path for our business, we knew that wholesale was important to us. We wanted to be in retail stores. And so to be able to do that, like, and scale it, it just, we weren't going to be able to keep all that up. Yeah. So did you and Ian both always have like, yes. I mean, I know we already touched on this a little bit, but like scaling and growth in mind from the very beginning. I think so, but not like in a strategic 
smart way for our, our industry. You know, like we didn't know what that looked like. And so, but I think there was something, maybe it's just the capitalist nature of uh, us, but we definitely were always looking to kind of grow and improve. I think that's just also who we are as people. Um, very kind of motivated doers. Um so yeah, we were always like, oh, cool. Like, are there other stores that we could get into? You know, or like, oh, how could we improve this mm-hmm. system in our facility? Um, you know, and it all took so much time, you know, like 14 years is a long time. And I think that sometimes we look at businesses and are like, oh, they have it all figured out. It's like, we we did a lot in the beginning, all ourselves. Um, so yeah, we learned definitely by making a lot of mistakes. Speaking of which, <laughs> yeah. Um, can you are you willing to share any times that were like LOL fail moments for you kind of personally in your business? And I and I share that I know this is a tough one, but um, you know, one of the most common things that a lot of solopreneurs and people who are just starting out, and especially I find a lot of like nurturing types. A lot of the, one of the main things that a lot of us struggle with is like perfectionism, right? And this sort of agreement that we make when we become an entrepreneur that like we're going to publicly fail sometimes. Like I'm going to send out the wrong Zoom link. <laughs> you know, these things are just a part of the of the deal. And so I'm curious if you can share a time where you know you had like a failure moment um, and your relationship with failure. Um, yes. Well, and yes, on the perfectionism piece, you know, another like great pivotal time for us was when we started going to trade shows because we literally didn't know anyone else who was doing what we were doing. And so to be able to connect with people and like share kind of problems, failures with them and to like even just see other people's paths, I think was really expanding for us. Um, but at the same time, going to those trade shows really brought out like the bad side of of perfectionism in me because I would compare our brand and our growth to these, you know, beautiful trade show booths where people clearly like spent a lot of money to like look a certain way. And I would compare us, you know, and I would almost leave being like, okay, we need to do X, Y, and Z just to like keep up with all these people. And now I see how even financially irresponsible it can be to like put all that money into a trade show booth. It's like, we always did kind of made our own and like did them in a really scrappy way. And it's like, we've been able to kind of, I don't know, you don't know what's behind a beautiful Instagram account or a beautiful trade show booth. It's like, they might be going broke. (laughs) You don't know. And I really, that was something I struggled with, you know, especially just around perfectionism. Um, But as far as failures, uh, so many. I mean, we've, you know, entered into agreements that we like didn't fully understand from a legal perspective. Um, That's something we learned early on. Um, We have, I'm just thinking personally, what's been something really embarrassing. I don't know, just going into these meetings where they expect you to kind of, like for me, financials in general is like not my natural skill. And so like, if someone's like, tell me you're like, ROAS or, you know, what was your EBITDA in like 2019? Like I couldn't tell you because I just don't have a memory for numbers in that way. And I'm really lucky that I have a partner who actually is really skilled in that. So, and that was just a lucky 
that was lucky. Um, but so there have been times when we've even worked speaking to investors at one point, and you know, they ask a lot of like financially driven questions, and I just felt so unprepared and like mortified, you know. It's almost like you see the brands that go on like Shark Tank and they get asked like all those kind of questions. And I'm like, oh my God, if I did that, I would, it would just be really, I'd have to just drill it all into my brain. Um, so yeah, that. <laughs> and I mean, going into retail, you know, I think continuing to understand about our industry, like we just didn't, you know, a lot of times we thought if we had this really cool, unique product, and we got it onto the shelf that because it's such a great product, it's just going to sell and be a success. Like, unfortunately, that's just not how it works. And maybe it does in other industries, but like, you need to like tell people that it's there and why it's good, you know, and do put it on sale. And like, there's a whole like strategy around that, that I only feel like we're really getting together even now in this phase of our business. So, um, We've had products get discontinued from retailers. It, Walmart is one like where we went into too many stores. We didn't know. They were just like, we want to put you in all these stores. And we didn't have the foresight to be like, that might not be a good idea. Like we might not be for every single Walmart shopper, you know? And now we're still in Walmart, but in less stores and it's much better for us. But like to even go backwards in that way is really like a hit to your ego when it's, you know, your business. Um, and, you know, to lose any kind of distribution. So, yeah. Does it get any easier, like through exposure therapy or <laughs> is it still hard? Um, it is easier because, you know, you do, you learn from these things. Um, but at the same time, I feel like there's always different problems that you might face. And so, you know, it just, it never feels good when it's, and you're maybe like losing business of any kind. Yeah. So I know that one of your strengths, Sam, is around uh, branding and marketing and really kind of developing the, the, the brand and the marketing strategy for Emmys. Um, and I'm just curious if you can share a little bit about that journey, maybe um, what ended like just maybe one example of a marketing move that you made that like really, really worked. Um, and I'm also kind of curious about your relationship between the idea of like niching down um, when it comes to when it came to Emmys. Yeah. Well, I will say I've always led our marketing when we were like a very scrappy business. Um, and I've always been really good at coming up, coming up with like out of the box, creative ways to kind of try to share our brand with people. It's definitely a totally different world when you have a marketing budget and like you really need to um, be reporting on your performance and the analytics. And that's been a transition that's happened since we were acquired. And I'm, I've, kind of realized that's actually not my strongest skill, even though I thought it was and I really tried. <laughs> um, but so pre-acquisition, um, I, I think what worked is that I really just utilized as much kind of organic uh, marketing strategy as I could. So I early on started an email list and post on Instagram. And, you know, we were just able to like grow all of that in a very organic way because I just was consistent with it. Um, 
And as far as like marketing moves, you know, so marketing also involves like packaging design and, you know, all of that kind of the copy and everything that goes onto packaging. And I think for us, we did the opposite of niching down. We niched up or we we de-niched because when we started, we were this very niche kind of superfood, raw, like heady cookie company. Um, and we even called our product macaroons then. Um, and so we were often put in like the raw food section of the store, which you'll see today that doesn't even exist anymore. And so there was a point when we realized that, you know, if we really want to grow, like we got to get out of this little tiny section of the store, because also what is, there's, what is a raw food anyway? There's a lot of different kind of definitions of what that means. And so we switched from macaroons to coconut cookies because a lot of people would be like, what's a macaroon? And we'd say, it's a coconut cookie. So just tell the people what it is <laughs> and, and try to go into more of like, whether it's a gluten-free section or the cookie set. So that actually led to a lot of growth for us because we, we de-niched. I don't know what the right terminology for that would be. We de-niched. Um, because I think we were maybe too niche in the beginning. And we really wanted to have a product that would that could be enjoyed by everyone. Mm-hmm. And so that was definitely big for us. And we actually saw there were other brands that, of course, I was like threatened by at some point that, you know, end up not doing that and not surviving. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like, I think that maybe we did have the foresight to, okay, this is like, raw food is not where it's at for us. Like we need to really grow and like position ourselves here. So I'd say that was a really good marketing strategy in general. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Sam. I think that, um, what you want, that thing that you highlighted around like moving from macaroon to coconut cookie, so much of marketing is just communication. And, you know, I love the phrase clarity over clever and, Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, just thinking about our, the keywords that we're associating with, I think that when we first start our businesses or a product, we want to like, we are usually surrounded by what's inspiring us. So we're really aware of these super niche terms and we want to like, you know, have all of the right hashtags and keywords that um, are super heady and, you know, in the know. And we forget that, like, if we want to appeal to a lot of people or more people that we have to speak their language. And so I love, um, I love that idea actually of, of kind of de-niching. Uh, we'll figure out what the word is for that, Yeah, <laughs> but expanding, you know, and just communicating like clear is kind, you know, as Brene Brown says. Totally. Yes. Oh my God. When people used to, I even have this video that I should post at some point of like me at this vegetarian festival in like 2013 or 14 or something. It's like, tell us about Emmys. And I just like rambled on. I was like, well, it started by me and my partner and we raw superfoods, vegan. Like I just kept going, 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 going. And I'm like, wait, what are we? You know, it's just to be like, yeah, you know, we're a cookie company for conscious snackers. You know, it's like, yeah, that's it. Um, And to have that clarity, honestly, like even in just the last few years is really nice and it helps with our communication and um, yes, totally. Game changer. Um, can you think of uh, what's some of the best business advice that you received along your journey? Easy. Uh, Jeff Berman, 
chairman of the board of directors of Ben and Jerry's for many years. He told us so early on, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) Like this is going to suck. No, Uh, basically what that meant was there's nothing you can do where you're like going to get to the end of something and like all your problems are going to go away. It's like, you're going to continue to just have challenges. And that's what being an entrepreneur and being in business is. And it's the way I took it is just as soon as you embrace that as part of the journey, like problems aren't going to feel like problems. It's just like part of it all, you know? And that was really good advice um, that I still think about all the time. Yeah. That's it sounds the- dark. It sounds dark, but it's not. <laughs> no. I feel that viscerally. It's fantastic. It kind of just, yeah, manages your expectations, right? (laughs) Totally. Um, Yes. That's so good. And Jeff, Mm -hmm. yeah, I I remember being introduced to Jeff as he was the the and with Ben and Jerry's, which is... Yes, yes. The and. That's Um, the guy. Yeah. Very cool. So at some point, Samantha, y'all went from being you know, the, the CEOs, the the folks that did everything for Emmys to hiring a CEO at some Mm -hmm. point, you share a little bit about what that was like. Yeah. Um, I think that something that Ian and I have done really well, and I think it might just be like who we are as people is that we've always known that like, we don't have all the answers. And so we've always kind of been sponges over the years, like anyone who we could, you know, talk to like as a mentor, um, we've always kind of taken those opportunities as many as possible. And so we have a number of like industry friends who we've gone to for advice. And there've been so many people who've been so generous with us. Um, And so there was a point when we knew we needed more support financially. And we actually met um, this guy, Bill, who ended up being our CEO, um, and hired him as a freelance financial consultant. And I think we started working with him maybe like one day a week or something. And then it quickly became two and then three. And we just loved Bill. He was just such a wonderful sounding board. And he really like appreciated the special things that Emmys created, like products, but also work environment and just our values in general. And so there was a point when we just kind of always thought we would love to have like a third one of us, like another like key decision maker um, to help us really guide this journey. And, you know, we had started talking about it and it was while Bill was working for us as a freelancer. And he actually was the one that was like, hey, I'd love to put my hat in the ring, you know, for that. And we were, because even with Bill, we had Bill fly to New Jersey so we could interview someone to be our CEO. So he was like, we trusted him in that way where we wanted him a part of that process anyway. And so he had kind of expressed interest. So I will say, it wasn't like we were like, we need a CEO. Let's go find as many people as we could. Um, We sort of, we, we, we were interviewing someone who was already a connection. And then when Bill had expressed that interest, we were like, wow, what a perfect fit. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that's necessarily the path that other entrepreneurs um, go down. But we were really lucky in that sense that here is this person who we really genuinely trusted. And um, it felt really good for us. You know, I know it didn't feel like we were giving up control because 
we knew what Bill's kind of key skills were and they really complemented ours. And he didn't want to come in and change, you know, who we were as a company. And so it was honestly amazing. We felt so like taken care of in this way. And, you know, he kind of helped kind of manage our kind of key, uh, like management employees and helped us like guide with finances. And we were sort of starting to think about raising money. Um, and that was really big and scary for us. And so he definitely helped us through that, um, which we never ended up doing, but yeah, it was a really great, uh, experience. And I think in general, there have been other key hires for us where we were like, wow, these, this person is incredible. And just to be able to like give that over and really trust someone is a really like beautiful experience, um, in running a business. Yeah. Um, I have so many questions, but uh, <laughs> one takeaway for me is that I think that, you know, it can be so hard to find the right person to come in and take such an important role. And I think it's really beautiful that this ha- unfolded quite naturally. And I think there's really something to be said about bringing somebody into the company in a, in a, in a way so that y'all can feel each other out before making that like big commitment. I think that mm-hmm. a lot of times we, we commit, I mean, it's, it's interesting the way that job searches usually go here and hiring usually works, right? Because you just like meet somebody a few times and you bring them on and it's like so much pressure and, you know, often really challenging. And so this seems like a, a way to go about that really important move that w- didn't seem wrought with like all of the things that could go wrong normally. Yeah. Oh, and the way that I met, that we met Bill was, we, I'm, I connected with his wife at a trade show like the year before we met Bill. And she was just this really lovely, amazing woman. And the following year, she like brought her husband with her to like meet this like nice couple with a cookie company. And um, so that was very organic in the way too. And don't get me wrong, we've um, hired people that were not a fit. Um, mm-hmm. And we've even worked with them for very long periods of time because we weren't sure it was like, are they just, do they know more than us? You know, like, are they just taking these responsibilities and running? And, you know, ultimately um, they just like, weren't a good fit for our company culture. You know, they might be really smart or good at what they do. So we've definitely made a lot of mistakes in hiring as well. Um, can you talk, do you have any tips for people who um, maybe are hiring their first support people and just that relationship between like the fact that nobody's going to do it like you do it and like kind of maybe the tension between like letting go, but also upskilling. Yeah, you, yeah, right. Cause you have to give people a chance. Um, I'd say don't be afraid to have, um, like a trial period in a way where maybe you have three or even up to six months where it's like, okay, we're feeling each other out. I want to see how you work. Um, and giving people, um, the autonomy to do what they need, but like, yes, of course it's your business. So there are going to be things that, um, they need to, they need to be aligned with you on like your goals and the way that they're going to go about their journey. And so, yeah, I'd say don't be afraid to kind of give people a try because they're trying you on as well. You know, it goes both ways. Um, so you also, well, okay, let me back up just a little bit. 
you know, Emmys took a non-traditional path towards growth, right? So a lot of companies of your size um, and your stage of growth would do the thing where they just go and try to raise a bunch of money pretty early on. Can you talk about your decision not to do that um, and to be essentially self-funded and sort of profitable uh, the whole way? Yeah. I mean, well, in the beginning, it's like, that's just all we knew, you know, because we didn't really understand the industry and we didn't know that most people were just out there raising tons of money very early on. Um, and for us, it was like, oh, when you have a business, you try to make more than you sell <laughs> or than you spend. And that really worked well for us because profitability had always been just something that we focused on. And there are a lot of brands who just focus on top line growth. And so it really did benefit us in the end. And then there was a time when, and we were able to, we, we didn't completely self, well, we did self-fund it, but we used bank financing. Um, so we got like loans and lines of credit from our local banks. And that was, and at first we needed a co-signer, which ended up being Ian's mom because we didn't have good credit when we first started the business. So very privileged to have that resource. Um, but then eventually we were able to get all that ourselves and we were the guarantors on the loans and everything, which, you know, felt scary at, at times. Um, but it, we always felt like debt was, uh, less expensive than equity you know, and to be able to give. And and so, and as we started talking to industry friends who had raised a lot of money, we just, it seemed like their jobs were to make their investors happy. And that just didn't feel right. Um, and we always talked to investors. We like would take those meetings, but it just didn't feel right. And it wasn't until we were truly ready to like, to grow a lot faster that we started having more serious conversations around that. Um, so we kind of just stuck to our guns and there were so once we had even close friends in the industry, there were so many people that were like, you haven't raised any money. They were shocked. So, yeah. because they just didn't know any other way. And also, you know, we had started so small and did everything ourselves for quite a while. And so that's just how we were able to do it. Would it have been different if we started the business now, you know, and you have like a mortgage and a car payment, you know, it's like we were in our very early twenties when we started the, the business, I was 22. Mm -hmm. Is that right? I think. Um, so, you know, your needs change, you know, and so I, I'm not saying that everyone should take this path necessarily, but it did work really well for us. And it, it is, was a very kind of different path than a lot of other brands in our industry. Yeah, a huge outlier. Um, and, and I think that this is why I really wanted to just for you to share your story, because, uh, you know, so much of your journey of Emmy's journey was really you and Ian just sticking to your guns and your intuition and sort of doing what felt right. Right. And so growth unfolds like in so many different ways and and y'all you know arrived you've arrived which we're getting to next but like and maybe it was this kind of long road but um but it was 
hopefully able to pretty much feel pretty good and sustainable that this whole time, you know, and I think that the typical models that we see in our society in America, the kind of the trajectory is one that really does lead to burnout that really does. Yeah. You spend all your time trying to raise money and then you're kind of um, the investors are dictating like what happens with your product. And that's just like the very typical way of doing business. Right. And so I just think it's so cool that y'all just, you weren't even, trying not to do that. Like you just right. were following what was coming up for you. And, and I just share that because, or just echo that because I know that that is so many people that are in New Money Social Club that um, I'm connected with. We are coming to business as not business people, as not people who, you know, got our MBAs, right? And so a lot of us feel like we're doing things wrong. And I just think that there can be so much strength in coming with your own fresh perspective and your own kind of creativity. Yes. Yeah. The comparing is so hard and I totally have been there. Um, but yeah, there's no like one path to success. Um, I mean, and don't get me wrong. I did burn myself out <laughs> just because I, just because I didn't raise money. Didn't mean I didn't burn myself out. So, um, that's another journey for sure. But, um, yeah, it's, there is not one path. And I know that now I did not feel confident in that as I was going on my different path. So believe me. Um, so this kind of brings us up to today where last year you folks had the opportunity and you made the decision to actually sell Emmys to Grupo Bimbo. So what's it like to sell a company? <laughs> what's life like on the other side? What is, what is all of that like? Um, it, it's so funny just how it all happened. It just, it really like wasn't, it's so many of the great things that have happened for us, like happened in a very organic way, you know, like in the way that like Bill came on as CEO. Um, we were in the process of looking at raising money seriously, like for real, for real. And we met, the people at Bimbo Bakeries USA, which is the US arm of Grupo Bimbo. And we started just talking to them. Originally, we were talking to them uh, um, about investing a minority investment. And then we kind of realized, wow, they would be amazing acquisition partners for us. And we were not in the... you know, We eventually... Did, we knew we wanted to sell the company at some point. There was just... We just knew that. Um, we wanted to be able to see how far Emmys could go and even like beyond us. And so, but this was not the time necessarily. We thought we were going to raise some money, maybe three to five years, we'd be able to sell it maybe. And um, meeting these people and just kind of seeing how they valued manufacturing and they value, it's one of their company slogans, like they value the whole person. Um we also genuinely liked and continue to like everyone there. Like, I'm just like, wait, this isn't, aren't we supposed to, I don't know. Um, and so what is it like when it just felt right? I'm just, this is from my perspective. I'm sure Ian would say something different or even some of our other employees, but um, our team really, uh, it just felt right. And I personally was ready. There was a point definitely in, during the pandemic where I was like, there's a lot of weight on our shoulders. You know, we have 34 employees and we care so deeply about everyone. And it just, we were ready to take a little bit of that weight off, whether it was with an investor or 
you know, eventually an acquirer. So it just, the timing felt right. And we were able to maintain so many things that were important to us, like our staff. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it, for most of our staff, it would improve their, you know, benefits and wages. And that was really important to us. And doing it at the time that we did without ever raising any money meant that we were going to be able to give 20% of the proceeds back to our entire staff. And that is something that like, it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it because just what a gift, you know, to be able to share this pivotal experience with everybody, everybody. Um, And so now it's actually, it feels the same and very different at the same time. Um, We have new people that are helping support Emmys that have a lot of different experience than we ever could bring to the table. A lot of corporate experience, which has been really awesome to kind of learn from. And um, of course, there are things that are challenging, you know, like I've got to like do my credit card expenses in this way, in this platform. And, you know, like, and just the way that HR works is, you know, there's just systems that we weren't used to. And so, um, you know, there are those things, but in general, like, it's really cool to see these people who really want to see Emmys succeed and they have different experience and ways to go about it. And, um, you know, we just have more resources. So I'm really excited about what's possible for us, honestly. Um, and I don't think that's always the case with brands being acquired. You know, you see, I think just, yeah, me and Ian being there and our entire team, we did have some people leave, but like most everyone is still there, which is here. Like we're still still here. Um, and it's really cool to just kind of see us in this new chapter together. That's so amazing, Sam. I appreciate you sharing that. I didn't realize that you, so a part of your deal was giving 20% of the proceeds. How did that work? It wasn't part of the deal. It was just because we hadn't given away equity. It's like we were able to then kind of, there were funds that we were, me and Ian could meet our personal financial goals and the goals for the business while also giving those proceeds to the entire staff. And that was important to us. That's amazing. Fun fact, I worked with Emmys for like a summer. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, but, yeah but, it should have stayed on. Could have been. I know. I, been. I really missed out. You really um, missed but, out there. <laughs> but my one little experience there, it was such an amazing literal family vibe. I mean, Ian's mom was there making the cookies. And then your amazing staff members that, you know, all across the board. But I know that a, a big part of your staff were from the local refugee community. Is that right? And and mm-hmm. a lot of them have stuck with you for many years, right? Many years. And um, yeah, that was like an unexpected kind of turn. Another organic thing that happened where, you know, we were not aware of the amazing Karen. That's their dialect. They're, most of our, they're all from Burma, uh, Myanmar, but they call it Burma. Um, but the Karen community in Ithaca is like this thriving, amazing community. And it's been really cool for us to have a tiny part in it. And uh, yeah, there have been many in the way that we kind of, we, we Bill helped us figure out a system for how we were going to um, 
give everyone funds, you know, from the acquisition. And, you know, it had to do with your position and how many years you've been with the company. And, you know, there were people who had been with us for like seven years and to be able to like give them a check. Um, that was such a good day. I'm going to cry. It was yeah. so great. It was just, and most of them, like, you know, I think we're shocked and like, didn't have any like crazy reactions. Like, Oh my God. But we like printed a letter in English and in Karen to give with the money. And, um, it was really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, so the entrepreneurial journey is um, not one way. It doesn't look one way. And I think the only thing that it, everybody has in common is that there's some really, really tough moments, right? It is the outlier's journey, as we said at the top of this call. And so like, don't be afraid to reach out for support and to listen to people who are doing similar things. Um, that is literally one of the quickest ways that we can convince our brain that it is possible for us is by being more and more exposed to other people stories and what it can look like um and as yeah, you can, from, being less alone it can be so lonely you know so. yes and and just what i love about your story samantha is is really just i think business marketing success all of it can be so creative there is no formula there is there's there's helpful strategies that you can like try on for size but honestly if you listen to like a thousand different entrepreneurs and how they did it it's going to be their own sort of creative mixing of what was in front of them what they're good at um and timing and meeting the right people that kind of lights it all up and so just kind of putting yourself in more and more of those spaces can be very beneficial samantha thank you so much for your generous time today i feel like I took in so much rich wisdom from your journey. If you, anybody wants to stay in touch with Samantha, she is uh, at Smith A. Abrams on Instagram, um, samanthaabrams.com. And she's going to be more and more in the public light uh, in the coming year. <laughs> We're dragging her out. And if anybody is interested in New Money Social Club, we meet every week. Um, this is the one kind of like outlier uh, event each month where we bring in a special guest. Um, but otherwise, we have awesome lessons around money, mindset, business, and marketing, and an amazing community to kind of draw some strength and inspiration from. So thank you all so much for being here. Um, Samantha, any last words from you? No, but thank you so much. I love being a part of this conversation and what you're doing. 